Welcome to episode 57, an intro to body-focused repetitive behaviors. They're more common than you'd think. Featuring Dr. Laura Chakis, licensed clinical psychologist from Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello, and thank you for listening today. I am excited to be here with Dr. Laura Chakis, who is a licensed clinical psychologist, and she has a specialization in treating children and adults in anxiety disorders, uh, OCD, and um, other related disorders like body-focused repetitive behaviors using cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness. Um, Laura, thank you for joining us today and for sharing um, your expertise. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to do what you're doing. Sure. Um, and thank you for having me. So I started treating OCD and anxiety disorders um, about 13 years ago when I started my practice. And I continued, um, you know, treating those as I was treating those disorders, I started seeing people with trichotillomania, and the um, also known as hair pulling disorder. And so I was treating that the same as OCD and talking to my supervisors at the time about it. And they asked me if I wanted to specialize in trichotillomania because the, the place I was at didn't have anyone who specialized in that. So I jumped on that opportunity because I always love a good challenge. And I also thought, you know, it was interesting. I was interested in the, the patients that I did have with that um, disorder. So I really kind of fell into that specialization, but have really learned to love it. And through the years, it's been a big part of my practice. So I've continued getting training. I go I go to and now present at the uh, TLC Foundation for BFRBs. They have an annual conference, and that's always a, a highlight of my year each each year. So, um, yeah, I've, I've really taken that into my practice after I left where I was working at the time, um, St. Louis Behavioral Medicine. I went off into private practice for a few years, and then I founded the Center for Mindfulness and CBT in 2016. And that's where I currently work as a psychologist and continue to specialize in those disorders. Got it. Um, well, thank you for being with us. Tell us kind of first to start off with, what is a body-focused repetitive behavior? Uh, that's a great question. And actually, you know, it's it's kind of funny because so many people have never heard of it. And I'll mention uh, I don't even say BFRB anymore because no one knows what that means, even therapists. But even when I say the whole thing, body-focused repetitive behaviors, I just get this blank look or like, what is that? So um, it, it's very surprising how many therapists, uh, you know, counselors, doctors, school counselors, everyone that should know about these disorders don't. So I'm glad I'm glad we're talking about this. But so basically, BFRBs. Um, are a group of disorders that relate to some sort of repetitive behavior directed at the hair or body. So the two most common ones are hair pulling disorder, also known as trichotillomania, and that one has been in the DSM for um, many years. It was in the DSM-4, um, maybe even before that, but that's the first one I used. Um, and then... Um, skin picking disorder, also known as excoriation disorder. That's what it's called in the DSM-5 when it finally made it to the DSM in 2013. 
which is a big, uh, big uh, day for, for all of us BFRB um, therapists. And then, um, oh, it's also referred to sometimes as dermatillomania. So that was what it was kind of called um, before it got its official diagnosis. Um, but it also, BFRBs can also include chronic nail biting, um, chronic thumb sucking, uh, cheek biting, lip biting. So it's any kind of, of, like I said, some kind of behavior that's done repeatedly um, that causes some kind of physical damage to yeah, the skin or hair or some part of the body. So, um, and, and just to a note on the, the nail biting, um, and thumb sucking, cause people always ask this, well, you know, it's so common, you know, well, so are babies who are sucking their thumbs, is that a BFRB? So no, um, just as, you know, all of, of, all of us in the mental health field know that it's only a disorder if it is out of the norm and it's causing significant distress or disruption in functioning. So nail biting is, is rarely um, seen and I have very rarely seen it in my office. It's only if they are biting so badly that they're getting like infections or their nails are all red and it's, you know, really causing them a problem in some way. But just kind of regular nail biting, usually people don't come in for that. Same with thumb sucking. Um, where I, I've seen it, actually, I have a, a client right now who's 17 years old and she sucks her thumb. So obviously, you know, that's a problem. Um, a three year old, eh not a big deal, you know, but so that's just kind of where we use discretion as a, a therapist to whether it's a, actually a disorder or not. Got it. So it, it is one of those things that falls on that continuum, like the DSM in general of kind of shades of normal and then where things cross over into that line of being clinically relevant. Um, so how are body focused repetitive behaviors diagnosed? How, how, how do we see it clinically? What should we be looking out for? So you, you sometimes will see it as far as someone who has um, on their face, you may see more excessive like scarring or, or actually I sh should say actually like open wounds or, or scabs um, so that looks like, you know, more excessive than somebody who just picks at acne every once in a while, but someone who's really digging in there and making big, um, bigger marks, or you might see like, um, kind of almost like polka dots on their arms or legs, um, whether it be like scars or um, fresher scabs. Um, people often will pick at mosquito bites or ingrown hairs, things like that. With the hair pulling, you may see a bald spot. You may see some missing eyelashes or eyebrows. However, most of the time, these the people who have BFRBs have become very good at hiding them, and so you won't see it at all. Um, even the people that, you know, excessively pick at their face, they're very good at hiding it with makeup, um, you know, very good at hiding it with clothing. I mean, one thing you may notice is if in the summer, if where you live, it's warm, like here in St. Louis, and they're wearing sweatpants and a long sleeve shirt every day. I mean, of course, that could be other things as well. But sometimes that's a way that they're covering it. Um, and the hair, yeah, they have, you know, same kind of thing. They will um, maybe cover it with a hat or scarf or something like that, but often hair pieces, hair extensions that we can't even, you know, tell. So I, I think that we should all ask about it. You know, it's a simple question just to say, you know, just like we ask about other disorders, just to say, do you ever um, do any repetitive behaviors to your body, such as uh, picking at your skin or pulling out your hair, um, you know, more excessively than, than, than you want to be doing? 
And that simple question can often get people to acknowledge it. Um, but however, they also may still at that point not acknowledge it. Um, another thing I do that I think really helps is I have brochures in my waiting room that um, are talk about body focused repetitive behaviors so that people know that I treat those disorders. And sometimes I'm, I'm hoping that they'll see it and that will make them more likely to bring it up when they start to read more about it. Because um, just like I said, most professionals don't know about BFRBs. Most uh, clients don't either. They've never heard of it. Uh, a thing I hear a lot is people will say, oh, I've you know been suffering with this for 40 years and I never knew there was a name for it. And um, that's really can be an emotional thing because they, once they figure it out, they are just such, there's such relief just in getting a diagnosis and knowing that they're not alone. So they just go to great lengths to hide it and cover it up and they may not even admit it to you because there's so much shame, guilt, embarrassment associated with these disorders. So I say ask and maybe keep asking if you think that that might be happening, even though they're not admitting to it. Um, I mean, that that's the my best advice with that. Um, and, and I think also if we can kind of spread the word, that's one of the things I'm trying to do is every time, you know, if I go to the dermatologist for myself or take my son to the pediatrician, I'm mentioning these disorders. I try to throw it in there just to let them know, you know, I treat these disorders. It's a little bit of a marketing technique, but also a really good, you know, I want to spread awareness everywhere I can. I'm doing it all over social media because it's really, that's a, a, one of the reasons I've become passionate about treating these disorders is it's really sad how people just don't know they exist when they're actually way more common than a lot of disorders. So the current, um, estimates are about one in 25 people have a BFRB. So every classroom, you know, there's a, there's a kid with BFR, a BFRB, but, you know, you ask a kid and they'll say, no, no one in my whole school does it. And, you know, it's just not true. They're just hiding it. That's really good to know, especially with the, um, the frequency. Um, how do BFRBs present with other diagnoses or excuse me, diagnoses? I know for me coming from a substance use treatment background, of course, we see skin picking disorders depending, well, not disorders, but symptoms depending on what substance someone might be using. How, how does it present uh, in concert with other behavioral health disorders? Oh, that's a great question, too. Yeah. So with the substance abuse, that's one area I really don't specialize in. But one a couple of comments on that is that, um, as you as you mentioned, that they do, the skin picking sometimes can be a symptom of um, drug use. And so sometimes people will get misdiagnosed with that. They'll when people see their skin, they'll think they're a, a you know a drug user when when they're actually not. Um, so when it's in like in that when it's just only done as a, a symptom of the drug use, then it wouldn't be considered a BFRB. One of the qualifications of the skin picking disorder diagnosis is that it's not related to a substance or a medical another medical condition. So just to point that out. But another thing I've 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 learned at the conferences, um, I go to the TLC Foundation for BFRB annual conferences, and they um, often talk about that there is some connection between addictions and BFRBs. Um, so 
you may see someone that has both that has an addiction to alcohol or, or another substance and also has a BFRB. There's also some, um, in the genetic, in the genetic, um, line that it may, you know, if you have a parent who's an alcoholic, um, you may see a, someone that has a BFRB. So not only do BFRBs kind of pass down genetically, it also can relate somewhat to, to the, um, substance abuse. Um, the other things that what it is commonly, um, I guess, you know, commonly seen with anxiety and anxiety disorders, although I will say there definitely are people that have um, just a BFRB and, and no other disorder, because I, I always want to make that clear, because people often think it's only related to anxiety or only related to OCD, and that's not the case. So um, there are many people that, that the BFRB is really their only diagnosis. But you do see it a lot with anxiety disorders um, and also OCD. Um, it can be um, kind of have more of an OCD feel to it, like uh, perfectionism kind of thing, like they want their skin to feel perfectly smooth. So they have to pick until it, it feels smooth if they feel any kind of bump. Um, so it can be similar to OCD. Um, and it has been um, both trichotillomania and excoriation disorder are now classified under um, OCD and related disorders. So I also always like to make it clear that they're not the same. So not everyone with a BFRB has OCD. Um, the majority actually don't have a, have OCD. It's just related to OCD. And, and I guess that was the closest category they could put it in. Um, so um, you also do see it sometimes along with ADHD. I see that's another um, common kind of uh, co-occurrence there. So it, it really can kind of go almost with any disorder, um, but those are the, the ones I most commonly see. Okay. And how do you s separate out whether you're looking at uh, an exclusive BFRB or whether it's presenting as part of another diagnostic category? W what do you literally diagnose? Do you go with OCD or anxiety disorder and and consider that a symptom? You know, the, the BFRB is as, as part of that diagnosis or do you diagnose them both separately? I would, if they have both... I would really diagnose them separately. Um, like, so, well, I'd say if it's kind of just like the OCD flavor to it, um, maybe like, you know, I, like, like their only OCD type symptom would be the perfectionism with the picking and they don't have any other OCD symptoms, I would just diagnose the skin picking disorder. But if somebody is um, perfectionistic with their schoolwork or, um, you know, just has other symptoms of OCD, other compulsions that they're doing, then I would diagnose both disorders. So I really just tease out just like you would in any initial evaluation, you know, going through different symptoms and trying to figure out, you know, which um, diagnoses they meet the criteria for. And then um, sometimes it takes longer, like I said, because they won't be very forthcoming. And then sometimes even within, they might come in specifically for a BFRB, and that's the only diagnosis I see at first. And then upon further examining the BFRB, we might see there's some anxiety um, that's kind of, it can be almost masked by the BFRB because if they're always, let's say, picking or pulling their hair um, to reduce the anxiety in a way, they may not even notice that they're anxious because they're just doing the behavior instead. So sometimes we'll see some underlying anxiety or, or something else. So just kind of depends. Um, 
really the, another key thing is that every person with a BFRB or every, you know, BFRB diagnosis is very different. You know, there's not a one size fits all kind of treatment for this because there's not a one reason why people do this. It can be very, very different. And I think in a very important part of the treatment that's often missed with other providers is um, understanding why the person is doing the behavior. So that takes a very thorough assessment um, and, and, ha- and it includes the individual tracking their own behavior, which they often don't really want to do, but it, it really is an important piece. I, I explain it to them and, con- and convince, I guess, or help motivate them to do it by helping them understand that this is probably why you haven't gotten better with other therapists. Many people come to me, said they've seen like three different therapists and no one has helped. Um, they've tried different little, I call them like tricks and tips. It might be, you know, different strategies or here, you know, different little, they say here, try this or just cover your head or, you know, there's lots of different things you can do and they work temporarily, but nothing is going to be long-term unless you um, understand why they're doing it. Tell me about any relationship between BFRBs and self-harm, um, knowing that some self-harm is more and more has been kind of falling under the umbrella of a possible anxiety disorder. How do you see those two interact? Yeah, so that's another, that's one of kind of the uh, misconception about a BFRB is that people think it's the same as self-harm or that it, you know, is just another form of self-harm. So First, I'll talk about the differences and then the similarities, because there definitely are some similarities as well. But um, the main difference is that someone who is doing a, a BFRB, engaging in that behavior, they're not wanting to cause any pain, any any physical pain, and actually um, usually don't feel any pain at all. Even, you know, the only pain they might feel is if they get a skin infection, you know, once it's infected, you know, um, they might feel some pain, but actually picking at the skin, pulling out the hair, the eyebrows, things that, you know, others of us might think would be painful. Um, they really don't find pain. Usually they find it more self-soothing, um, maybe relaxing. Um, so they're not doing it as a way to, yeah, to, to really cause a pain response. They're, doing it, well, this is where it gets into the complicated part. They're, they may be doing it for many different reasons. Like I said, sometimes self-soothing, like kind of sensory thing, sometimes as a relief of anxiety, sometimes as a habit that they've started, you know, just kind of like think of thumb sucking. Um, well, and that generally is kind of self-soothing, but then they just, it becomes such an ingrained habit that it becomes very hard to stop because it's been reinforced through the years. Um, and then sometimes it's more like the perfectionism thing. Um, so there, there can be lots of different reasons why, but it, it's really, I've never heard of anyone doing it to, you know, intentionally cause physical pain to try to help deal with their emotional pain. Um, now the similarities with self-harm is that you know, and, and self-harm um, is not one of my specialties. So, you know, forgive me if I'm saying things wrong, those of you in the, in the self-harm community, but um, the, I do hear similarities when I hear people talking, um, other therapists talking about treating self-harm and that, um, well, one thing I've heard is that with self-harm, you also want to really figure out why they're doing it, you know, really um, figure out what, what is underlying the behavior and that like the the harm, the self-harm itself 
isn't necessarily the main problem, but it's an indicator that something else might be going on. And that's often true with a BFRB. Now, not to say that there's like that the person was abused or that there was trauma or some major other underlying condition, but just that it's maybe a sign that there's some need or a sign that they have some anxiety that's not being addressed, something like that. So I think that's a similarity to self-harm, as well as I, I understand self-harm can help relieve um, an emotion that you don't want to feel. So the BFRB can definitely do that too. Just want to make the distinction that it doesn't actually cause the person any, any physical pain. Thank you. Thank you for breaking that down. Another thing that I've heard mentioned before is a relationship between skin picking and borderline personality disorder. Um, how has that come up for you and your work? And is that something you've seen? I before? would say very rarely. I mean, I would say, you know, I've never counted. I kind of wish I would have like kept some kind of count people. <laughs> I have had people ask me like, how many people have you seen with BFRBs? I mean, my guess would, you know, be in, in the hundreds somewhere, which I know is a, is a broad you know, vague kind of number, but I saw so many people in an in intensive program I worked in as well as individual therapy, you know, over the past 13 years and then group therapy that I've been doing over the past six years. And so in all those hundreds of patients I've seen, I can honestly only think of one person who had skin picking disorder and also borderline personality disorder. Um, it's, I mean, I'd say it's, there's really no correlation. I don't see any correlation. They, they really haven't found any research connecting um, uh, BFRBs to trauma. I mean, there's just as much of a, a percentage of people with BFRBs that have experienced trauma as, as just kind of the general population. So um, yeah, I, I don't think there's ever been any connection made. I think that's probably another one of those myths that it, it's connected when it's really not. Very good to know. Um, that's why I'm glad we're having this conversation to to try to talk about these behaviors and kind of what they're rooted in and how we should be approaching them clinically if they're not within our specialized skill set. Um, so what has been shown to be effective in treating BFRBs? So um, first of all, the, I want to mention that there is limited research on BFRBs um, I think they've had trouble getting research funded. This is something I hear at the annual conference every year that um, because, you know, we don't really, or society doesn't really recognize these disorders. Um, they don't recognize the severity of them for sure. Um, there's also not drug companies to fund the the research um, because, I, yeah, I, I guess from what I've heard is that they don't find these as serious enough. So there's limited research, but um, the research that has been done, um, their CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is the one that there's been the most evidence for. Um, so I couldn't find one like meta-analysis or one study that, that showed that, but that's just kind of the consensus in the field is that the cognitive behavioral therapy is the most effective um, but then there's been, it's been broken down into what about CBT, because many of us do CBT and it's not, um, it's not just the thought challenging or, you know, uh, behavioral activation or those kind of things. What they've found, um, the, the first treatment that was developed for um, trichotillomania was habit reversal training or HRT. Actually, I, I take that back. It, back. it wasn't developed for trichotillomania. It was first, it was used for trichotillomania. You may also recognize people who treat um, Tourette's or other 
tick disorders. They also use HRT. Um, it may also be used with other disorders as well. But it was one of the first um, treatments done for trichotillomania. And it has been successful. So basically what HRT is, um, is it involves three steps. One is awareness. So building awareness of, of when the person is doing the behavior. And then step two is some relaxation training. It could be, you know, like deep breathing. And then step three is a competing muscle response. So um, the one that was originally developed, and, and I still teach this to my clients, is um, clenching the fists. So like tightly, um, and you can try it now. I always do this whenever I talk about it. So like clenching the fists um, tightly and then holding your fists like along your <laughs> belt like where your belt line would be, where your belt would be if you were wearing one and holding that for about 30 seconds to a minute. And what they found there is that the muscles that you use that you're, when you're clenching are the same muscles that are used for hair pulling um, and skin picking. And so it kind of tires out those muscles. And also it's impossible to be picking or pulling when your fists are clenched like that. Um, so people, I'll recommend people do kind of a, any variation of that. It doesn't have to be at your belt line. I mean, that's the way I was originally taught, but any kind of fist clenching, often I'll have students just do it under their desk. You know, if they're at school and they notice they're pulling, just clench their fists. Um, and so people have found that to be very helpful, but um, more recent research has found that that alone wasn't helpful um, or that that, you know, gave some symptom relief temporarily, but didn't result in long-term um, recovery. So what is now um, the kind of treatment of choice, the, the type of cognitive behavioral therapy that, um, that was developed by the Scientific Advisory Board of the TLC Foundation for BFRBs. Um, and so this is called COM-B, or so it's capital C, then lowercase o-m, and then capital B. And that stands for Comprehensive Behavioral Treatment. Um, and it was developed for trichotillomania. So there is a study by um, Dr. Charles Mansueto and his colleagues in 1999. Um, and the study was called just that. It was the Comprehensive Behavioral Treatment of Trichotillomania. So they, most of the research that, that, was, that has been done has been on trichotillomania because, as I said, skin picking disorder wasn't a diagnosis until six years ago. So, um, you know, so the research is done more on trichotillomania, but almost all, if not all of the treatments that have um, worked for trichotillomania also work for other BFRBs. So um, this comprehensive behavioral treatment or COMB um, is, focuses on, um, as I, as I kind of mentioned, what I found so helpful is understanding why, where, and how, um, the individual engages in the BFRB. So using that tracking and really um, specialized tracking to look at these um, five components that they identified that were important to look at. So um, one is sensory, two is um, affective or emotion, um, uh, cognitive, um, then they have uh, motoric or basically like kind of looking at the motor movements and how automatic it, it is and then place or environment. So looking at those five areas, making sure that the tracking includes those five and really looking at 
um, how, you know, maybe uh, sensory issues are involved, like if there's a, a sensory need that's not being met, or maybe they're overstimulated um, in, with, you know, one of their senses. It's often the sense of touch, um, and that may result in the behavior. Or, like I said, it could be one of those others, like an emotional or cognitive. It's generally some combination of those five, not just not just one. But then you use what you find in that tracking to come up with a, a very specialized behavioral plan based on what you find in the tracking. And so um, they found in that study in 1999 that um, these interventions were were helpful, were, were more helpful than any of, of the other and more helpful than the HRT alone. And it also includes some HRT. HRT is one of the strategies. It's just kind of a more comprehensive plan. Um, now, couple other things I want to add. Mindfulness, um, there has been some research um, showing that mindfulness-based interventions combined with HRT um, have been helpful, um, but there was only one study that I could find that is um, just, just mindfulness alone. So this was um, a study done in 2015 by, I apologize if I pronounced the names wrong, um, Hareen Busana, Kusamant, and Filippo, and they did a case study on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for trichotillomania, and they did find that mindfulness alone may be an effective intervention. So there's some promising um, for that, which is something I've always um, used in my clinical practice with people with BFRBs and have found it to be really helpful, so I was glad to get some of that, um, see the validation in the research. Um, a couple other things I want to add here. <laughs> this is, sorry, this is a kind of a long section here. Um, but group therapy is another area that um, not much research has been done on, but many practitioners, uh, many therapists have to. Um, and I myself um, have been doing group therapy and, and found it actually more effective than individual therapy for these disorders. And the reason I think um, is that one of the major um, symptoms or, you know, um, I guess ways that BFRBs affect people is that it causes such intense shame, which leads to isolation um, and just depression, hopelessness. And when you bring people together with these disorders, they have the sense of relief that, you know, they're not alone, that other people do this, and that, that these other people are normal and just like them, um, which may sound weird, but most of these people, um, before I started group, I was hearing over and over again, my patients with BFRBs saying, I'm such a freak and there's nobody else like me. I can't believe I do this. I'm so weird. I mean, nobody's going to ever like me. I'm just this, you know, crazy person. And then, you know, I, I kept hearing these same things and I'm like, no, you guys are all like totally normal people. I, I, you know, if I wasn't your therapist, I'd want to be your friend. Like you're totally like a cool person. You know what, you know, I didn't say all that to them, but that's what I'm thinking. And so as I kept hearing the same things and I realized these people need to meet each other. And so I just started putting flyers up for group and, and some of my individual therapy clients went into group, but mostly I was getting kind of just new people coming in just for the group. And, um, so I think one thing is that just feeling that they're not alone, reducing the shame and isolation, which is 
a huge, huge thing and, and just helping them feel better. Um, but also I found that the group accountability is higher than or stronger than the individual or the accountability and in individual therapy. So any of us who are therapists or counselors know that that accountability is such a big piece of of change. You know, you, you hold someone accountable. But in the group, um, and w- the way I've set it up for it to be, you know, cognitive behavioral group where we set goals and um, they're very supportive and nurturing of each other. And so people want to do well to come in and tell the other group members like, hey, I met my goals or I, you know, I did some of it. And or if they're struggling, they want to come in and get that support from from others. So that accountability support, I think, are just so important. And so I use um, basically a combination of, of the comb B and mindfulness in um, a group therapy setting. And I found that to be the most helpful. So there's my kind of long answer of what treatment approaches are effective. Thank you. I think it's great that you're covering both some specific treatment modalities and methods, but then also looking at group therapy and your own experience of how that's been helpful in, it sounds like primarily just reducing shame, increasing accountability, and and, um, also helping people feel more comfortable with what they've been experiencing. Um, I can certainly see the benefit of that. Um, when, so when those of us who don't specialize either with OCD or with BFRBs, when we see these things in our practices, what do we need to be doing? Like, what are the first steps? Do we immediately, you know, immediately refer out? Do people work alongside folks like you who are specialists? Like, what does that look like for yeah, those of us who don't have a specialization? that's a great question. And, um, I think it, it really depends on the severity of the BFRB so the first thing I would recommend is um, to to um, first, well, first you want to look at if there's any medical risks. Um, so there's a couple things that are really important that we should all know about. Um, so with hair pulling, it is possible to get um, an obstruction in your abdomen. It's basically, it sounds kind of gross, but like a hairball in your stomach or in your abdominal, um, you know, gastrointestinal tract that actually can be deadly if, if it's not surgically removed. And um, this, they actually have a name for it. It's called a trichobazar. And um, I have not had anyone personally have it, um, thankfully, uh, maybe partially because I always ask, you know, anyone that is pulling their hair, I always ask, and if it's a child, make sure to tell the parents to ask if they're swallowing the hair. So it's a, I'd say, uh, not common, like I'd say more people don't swallow it than do, but it's, it does happen. Um, people do swallow it. And if they're swallowing it repeatedly, um, it, it can form into a, a hairball. And sometimes there's really vague or minimal symptoms until it becomes very dangerous. So if anyone, if you, so you, if anyone's pulling out their hair, you need to ask if they're swallowing it, um, and ask it, you know, in a way to not shame them because they probably feel incredibly embarrassed about that. I usually say, you know, some people swallow their hair after they pull it out. Is that something you do? Um, If they say yes, um, I know this sounds extreme, but this is what I was taught and I have sent people to the ER. So you send them to the ER, um, you know, better safe than sorry and have them get um, an ultrasound to check out just to make sure they don't have any obstruction. So that's with hair pulling, um, the most dangerous part of it. With skin picking, it um, it can lead to deadly skin infections. Um, 
So like one of the people I've worked with, she had um, MRSA in her leg. Um, it all started with picking out a mosquito bite, got so bad that she was in the hospital for eight days. She had a section of her leg removed. She almost died from this, um, you know, all from the skin picking. So you want to ask them, you know, do you, do you have any infections? Um, if they're not sure, send them to a doctor again, you know, urgent care or um, emergency room if, if they're really thinking it's it's infected um, to get it checked out. So those are just a couple things to mention right away that we all need to be aware of. Um, but then I would say, you know, determine how severe the BFRB is. Um, and well, and I'd say if you don't have any training in OCD or BFRB specifically, that it is best to refer out for that part. What I tell a lot of therapists like in the St. Louis area is um, that they could continue working with the person if they have other, you know, maybe underlying um, conditions or, or co-occurring conditions like anxiety or depression or things that they feel comfortable treating. And then I actually just recommend that they refer the person to my group. So they'll do group with me and then individual therapy with, with that therapist who identified it. Um, if it is really severe, they may need an individual therapist um, also who's um, trained in treating BFRBs. Um, if you if you are you know somewhat familiar with this, you know I'd recommend really you know getting additional training. And it's not it's not really that um, cumbersome or that difficult. I mean, for me, it was an ongoing process, and that's what I'd recommend that you continue to be updated because we're getting new information all the time. Um, so the first place to go is the TLC Foundation for BFRBs, their website, which is just bfrb.org. All the latest research comes through there, all the um, just articles and um, advice for parents and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, I think, yeah, there's different ways that therapists can get trained as well. So the that um, organization does offer training programs. Um, I believe theirs are on DVDs right now. Um, so you can find that on their website. Um, and then I also offer some online training options as well that I'll, I'll mention more about at the end of this. So um, there, are, there definitely are ways to get trained pretty quickly and easily. And I do highly recommend that because there are just there's such a shortage of providers. So if any of you listening are a new counselor or therapist and you're wanting to expand your practice and get more clients, um, develop this specialty. It's It really helped me when I went off into private practice. I mean, there's just, as I said, there's a high prevalence of people with these disorders. And there are, like in the St. Louis area with, you know, over 2 million people in this area, there's three therapists that treat these disorders, you know, three, including me. I mean, it's crazy. It's ridiculous. You know, so I keep telling people this, you know, please learn this stuff. We need more therapists to treat these disorders. That's a really good point about the specialized training. Thank you for letting us know where we can go in order to get that and get more information and resources. Um, when it comes to things like uh, non-therapeutic approaches, so looking at, say, medications, What's been your experience with that? What have you seen psychi uh, psychiatrists and nurse practitioners do? How how does that go in terms of a treatment well, plan? Well, so um, I can talk about that two ways. One from the the research perspective, because that's always mentioned at the conferences. So 
um, there has not been any medication, either single medication or even combination of medications that have been approved by the FDA to treat BFRBs. Um, the, and they've also found that, that cognitive behavioral therapy is more effective than medication um, in, in treatment outcome. Um, however, in um, 2009, uh, Dr. John Grant, who's one of the scientific advisory board members, um, he published a study finding that an amino acid called N-acetylcysteine, or NAC for short, um, did significantly reduce symptoms um, in about 50% of the people who've taken it. Um, And so in my practice, what I have seen is if somebody has really, you know, severe OCD or or significant OCD or anxiety, then those disorders definitely can help. It's helping kind of the underlying condition. It may help, it may help reduce the behavior some, but I have not really seen medication significantly help anyone either. So it's, it's pretty similar to the research. Um, I'd say, I mean, there's also like we talked about co-occurring ADHD, that medication can be um, kind of hit or miss um, because if it's increasing their anxiety, um, even if it's decreasing their ADHD symptoms, it, it could make the BFRB worse. Although sometimes it does make the BFRB better. It does help if, um, you know, if they're like having trouble um, realizing that they're doing the behavior they get, or they do it when they get really distracted or, um, or if it's like a kind of um, impulsive kind of a thing. I, at sometimes an ADHD medicine can help um, if if the person has ADHD. It's not like it's used just um, in general for BFRBs. Um, but the NAC, like I mentioned, I have seen some people say that that does help, um, and that's not prescribed. But I always recommend, or you know, I was told to have people always, you know, talk to their doctor about it. it you can you can get it anywhere, but you need to talk to your doctor to make sure it doesn't interfere with anything else that you're taking and just to make sure it's, it'd be a good fit for you. So that is the only one really that has seen much promise. Now, again, um, or I don't know if I mentioned this, they're doing a lot of research now. There's been a big um, initiative to get more research going on BFRBs or they're looking at trying to find a medication that will be helpful um, as well as looking at like genes and which, um, you know, genetic, they want to find like specific genetic precursors or genes that are related to BFRB. So hopefully information in the next few years will help us identify a medication that could help. So I always recommend that people see an MD just to make sure that the NAC doesn't interfere or interact with any other medications they're taking or just to make sure that it's the right fit for, for them. So um, make sure to you know always, always have them do that. That's really interesting about CBT being shown to be more effective than medications. Yes. And I mean, that's, that's really what I've seen in my clinical practice as well. Um, Although I will say one other thing on that is that um, I think there's got I think that there's a reputation out there that um, these disorders really aren't treatable or that um, yeah that really nothing works to treat these disorders and I, I can see where that comes from um, because I think these disorders are very hard to treat like when you compare it to um, the other things I specialize in anxiety disorders and OCD. 
I mean, I would say that, you know, when, when people are doing as a therapist doing the correct or the, you know, what evidence shows effective for anxiety or OCD, um, which is CBT also using that specific treatment. And the, if the client is engaged in doing the treatment right, I mean, you're going to see like really high success, success rates. I don't know the exact research, but, you know, I'd say, you know, 90% will get better as far as my clinical practice. With BFRBs, it is a lower rate. You see a lot more dropouts, uh, you know, a lot of people dropping out because it's just too hard. It's just so hard to stop these behaviors. Um, but you also, um, you know, generally will we'll see that it, just they don't respond as well to the treatment as, as they, I'd say, do with OCD and anxiety disorders. Um, however, I've, I've, I've gotten more optimistic in the past few years. Um, I think for a couple reasons. One is focusing on what the client's goals are and really um, looking at or, or explaining to them that self-acceptance is it can be the, a, a big part of their goal. And um, often people really find that even if they don't completely stop the behavior, they can have a, a great life and, and really essentially not meet the criteria for the disorder anymore because their distress about the disorder, you know, their emotional distress significantly reduces to the point where it's not clini clinical anymore and there's no disruption in their functioning as long as they can, you know, uh, go out and, um, you know, see friends and go to school and go to work and go to you know, um, go swimming and do whatever they want to do, even if they have um, some skin lesions or some bald spots and they can be okay with it and really feel okay, then they don't meet the criteria for the disorder anymore, which is really um, a kind of a new way, uh, at least for me, it was kind of a mindset shift. And I think for clients, it's also a mindset, mindset shift that's really important um, because, um, I think it also helps them in their recovery. So it actually helps them reduce the behaviors as well. If they can be more accepting of themselves. Um, I also teach a lot of self-compassion, which is, um, you know, I don't know, I guess it's not really a type of mindfulness or anything, but I teach like self-compassion meditation and help them learn to be kind to themselves and treat themselves, um, like they would treat a friend and, um, that, along with that kind of just self-acceptance, really, really goes a long way in, in, in their recovery from the disorder. Um, and like I said, also then can help to significantly reduce the behavior. So I think that, you know, the CBT, the behavioral treatment, it's mostly behavioral really that we're using, um, is definitely important. But I've, I've learned in recent years when I've added that self-acceptance and self-compassion, people have gotten so much better and and they actually stay with treatment because they are um feeling better they're 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 feeling better about themselves and they're and they're just in general feeling better so they're more likely to, to keep coming um whereas others just kind of give up because it's so frustrating um so i just yeah i wanted to add that piece as far as the, the effectiveness of the treatments um and and what i've seen I can see how there's just been so much shame for these people and knowing where to start to get it addressed and the importance of practicing 
active kind of what I call gentleness, like gentleness and self-acceptance mm-hmm. of trying to work through something. And and I can totally see the compliment with CBT there. Um, what are some important first steps in preparing somebody for treatment that's specifically geared at BFRBs? So generally I start with, um, finding out, you know, like I would with, with anyone, what, what their goals are, like, what, what do they want to see changed, you know? And they'll often say, I want to stop pulling my hair. Okay. And you know, what changes would that, you know, what would that look like in your life? What, what, what would change if you weren't pulling your hair? And, um, and then sometimes we'll talk about too, maybe not in the first session, but, but early on, like, um, would you like to, be more accepting of yourself and the behavior. And, and, you know, if you couldn't completely stop pulling, would you, um, you know, like to just feel better about yourself and, and helping them to kind of, uh, if they haven't already identified it to identify that as, as kind of a sub goal, or, or maybe sometimes their main goal is to be, yeah, more, more accepting of themselves and the behavior and so, so I think that that goal setting is important and continuing to look back at those goals. Um, and then also I, I will have them start a, a daily mindfulness practice right away. Um, I will sometimes teach them or, or, or do a guided meditation with them in the session and then send them an email of recordings um, that I've, that I've recorded um, or I'll have them do an app, um, the, the ones that I like the best personally and um, that I recommend, um, or Headspace, um, as well as Insight Timer. Um, those are the, the two that I recommend the most. Um, and so get them going on, you know, express or teach them the importance of mindfulness and how it could be helpful and then have them start that right away because that's going to help just with so many aspects of it. I I explained that that's going to help with them gaining awareness, which is so important because so many people are doing these behaviors um, mindlessly. They're they're just they have no idea they're even doing it. They um, might be sitting in class or at work or watching TV or in the car, and they're just picking or pulling and don't even realize they're doing it. And I mean, sometimes they'll just find a pile of hair or blood and and be like oh my god what happened and like literally they're like in a trance and don't realize what they're doing our trance kind of like state so um, awareness you know mindfulness builds awareness Um, also it it builds um, ways kind of helps them um, with emotional regulation being able to deal with emotions that may either trigger or exacerbate their symptoms so helping them be able to um be able to respond to anxiety in a different way, be able to um, manage their their anger, their depression, or whatever they may be dealing with. Um, and, and I mean, as probably most of you know, since mindfulness has gotten so popular lately, there's so many, there's just so many um, benefits. So I kind of just go through maybe what I think would apply to them if they're struggling with impulsiveness or whatever it is they're struggling with. You know, I mean, mindfulness could almost help with anything. So I don't make it up, but you know, if, if it fits then I, you know, let them know that it could help with that. And then say, just give it a try. Um, I like headspace. It starts with like three minutes a day, just do three minutes a day. That's it. You can commit to that. It's like brushing your teeth, you know? Um, and if it's a kid or a teen, I might have them do like a little behavior chart and get rewards for doing it. If it's an adult, I, I use rewards for adults too, and have them, 
maybe they'll just say, okay, if you keep it up for a week, what are you going to get for yourself? You know, you're going to maybe go to Starbucks or get your nails done or, you know, something, something like that. Um, because mindfulness is hard to keep up with. I know for myself, I, I, I try to practice daily. I know that's what I need to do. And I, I'd say I practice almost daily, but it's hard. There's many days where it's hard to fit it in and it's hard to keep it up. So, um, so I talk a lot about mindfulness and teach that at the beginning of treatment. Um, and then the other thing is, um, the tracking, which is so important. They, um, can either use like a, a like paper or um, a tracking sheet that has those five categories on it that I mentioned before, um, the sensory, um, emotional, cognitive, um, motoric, or how aware they are, and then environment, um, so that they're tracking all of that. Um, or they can use an app. I, I know a lot of people don't like to use paper, especially the teenagers. And so um, there's um, an app called Trick Stop. And another one called, um, I think it's called Skin Pick. And both of those do a decent job of tracking. They don't have all the categories I want on there. They're not perfect, but better than nothing. It certainly gives us some information to, to work with. So that's really where I start and have, you know, really gathering the information that, that we need to then develop a specialized treatment plan. It sounds like it's a really multimodal response to include some technology, to include mindfulness, and then also, of course, the work that you're doing in the room. Um, are there any books that you've had people work with or that you've heard about and recommend either for people to use on kind of a self-help level um, or as a complement to treatment that clients might be able to utilize? Yeah. Um, so the kind of classic or one of the original books that, that I refer back to a lot, um, it's really great for therapists uh, um, as well as, as clients, is um, The Hair Pulling Problem by Fred Penzel. Um, so so that's a great kind of a, almost like, it's a, not quite a textbook, but almost like it has so much great information. And then um, for kids, um, kids and teens, and I sometimes use some of this for adults too, is a book called The Hair Pulling Habit and You. Um, it's a, a workbook um, for, yeah, it's designed for like kids and teens. Those are really the two main, I know they're both referring to hair pulling. If I, I'd say I more often um, am giving kind of like worksheets or, you know, copying things out of those. And um, there are many other books listed on the website bfrb.org and some that are specific to skin picking, but those are the two that I mainly recommend. Good to know. And with our time winding down, what are some common misconceptions that you find about these disorders that you'd like listeners to know about? So um, some we've already mentioned, uh, but, you know, often people think BFRBs are really rare and they're, you know, that, that, doesn't affect anyone they know. They'll say like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know anyone that does that. But as I mentioned, one in 25 people do this. And, and that's just like documented cases. The other thing, it could even be higher than that because so many people don't get treatment or don't even know they have the disorder. Um, another common misconception is that it's only um, girls or women that have these disorders. And, um, that's really not true. It, um, we see people of all of all genders um, with these disorders. Um, in childhood, actually, they found that it's about equal as far as um, girls and boys. But then by adulthood, it actually is 
their uh, reported cases are about 75 to 90 percent female. Um, however, again, that's the reporting. So this could be um, because women are more likely to get therapy. It could be because for, you know, women, hair and skin is um, in our society is uh, kind of deemed more important and it's more important to look good. Um, it could also be if you think about it, you know, men who have bald spots, you know, they can just shave their head and that's socially acceptable to have a, a shaved head. Women, you know, not as much. Um, so there's, you know, several, I think, factors that, that may go into it that may be distorting this some. Um, but I definitely see it, you know, in, in all genders. Um, another um, misconception is that B, a BFRB is just a, a bad habit and it's, it's not really a disorder. So as I explained, these are, you know, complex psychological disorders. It is not just a habit. It sometimes can have a habitual nature to it. Um, but that's just one part of it. It is it is a lot harder to stop than most um, habits. Um, and, and then kind of related to that, another misconception I often hear is that um, people with BFRBs don't want to stop the behavior. People kind of think that they, well, if they stop, if they could stop, they, no, I'm sorry, they think, um, well, why don't they just stop? You know, they think it's so easy to stop and that, that, yeah, they probably just want to keep doing it if they're doing it. Um, that is really not true. Most people with the disorders really desperately want to stop. They are so, you know, um, embarrassed and, and feel guilty about doing it and frustrated with themselves and the shame and isolation that I mentioned. So they, the consequences of it. Um, yet it, it's, it is similar almost to an addiction or a, you know, compulsion that they literally, you know, feel that they cannot stop. And so, um, they, they certainly would like to stop um, the majority of them. Now, you will see some kids and maybe younger teens um, and, and sometimes adults, but you will, more often you'll see this with kids is that they sometimes they actually don't want to stay. They don't see any of negative implications of it. They say, well, you know, it's fine. I don't care. Nobody's teasing me. I don't care. You know, I don't have eyebrows or eyelashes. It's no big deal. Um, and in that case, I would say to the parent, if there really is no, you know, no medical issue, it's not any health concern. Um, if it really is fine with the kid, then it's not a disorder. It's, um, you know, and it, the parent generally would ha will have issues with it. Um, and I say that's kind of something that the parent needs to work on. And if the kid at some point wants to work on it, great. But if they don't, or you can't force a kid to work on this if it's not causing any problems for them. But for the most part, people with BFRBs really do want to stop and they've generally tried so many things and that's why they're so frustrated because it's so hard to stop. So those are the main misconceptions that I, that I hear about. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying those. I think the gender differences are important for us to know on the clinical level and also keeping in mind what other variables might be affecting that. Like so many diagnoses that we see more commonly in men or in women and why that might be. I think you brought up some really good points. So Laura, we um, are wrapping things up right now and I'd love to hear from you, how can people learn more about you, learn more about the work that you do? Um, you've pointed to some great resources today, but if you could restate some of those for our listeners in case they want to look those up, I think you have such a wealth of knowledge to offer. So please um, share share some of these things with us. Sure, sure. So just to learn more about BFRBs in general, I think, you know, um, the website bfrb.org, 
um, which is the TLC Foundation for BFRBs. Um, that's their website. They are um, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting um, awareness and education on BFRBs. So there's so much information on there. Um, then I also do provide some online training and coaching um, on these approaches that I've talked about. Um, and so um, the best place to go to get more information from me is I actually have a, a, a private Facebook group. So you have to ask to join. And that also helps so that clients can join as well as therapists and parents. And it can be confidential. Um, well, I, it's not therapy. So I wouldn't actually, sorry, say confidential, but it's private. No one knows you're in the group unless you're in the group. And so that group is called Overcoming Skin Picking and Hair Pulling and then a colon help for BFRBs. So you can just search that up in Facebook and then ask to join. Um, you could also um, feel free to email me if you have any questions or if you want to join my mailing list to get um, any, you know, get uh, to be on the list to know when I'm offering more um, free trainings. I often do free webinar series. Um, so my email address is lchakes, which is C-H-A-C-K-E-S at mindfulstl.com. Wonderful. Thank you again, Laura, for your time today. I think you've given us all a lot to chew on uh, and think about and probably not chew on hair. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> thank you again for your time. And we will definitely look up those resources. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having this topic. I'm, I'm very excited. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.